Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a study of the early Christian movement. My name is Andrew Johnson. I am an associate pastor at Neartown Church. I am with the resident Ephesiologist, Michael, and we are sadly missing our fair Matt Till, lead pastor of, well, a wonderful church that right now is in his living room and is sick. No, it's not everybody. It's just Matt and his family are ill. So we are praying for them. Even when you hear this podcast, hopefully they will be well, uh, but pray for them because we want all of the Till family uh, to be healthy, happy, and whole. Yeah. Uh, and that stinks too, because they were hoping to go do a little vacation together to get away as a family. And here they come down with influenza. Thankfully, it's just the flu. We have, I, I don't think they've contracted the coronavirus. So, <laughs> right. um, so ju- just the normal flu that makes you feel awful for days on end. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Michael and I are sitting down and we decided that upon the very monumentous uh, event, we are going to sit down and interview the author because uh, by the time you are listening to this, the book of Physiology, a study of what, what, what was the official tagline that we finally put on the book? Yeah, the, the study of the Ephesian movement. Okay, so a study of the Ephesian movement. It came out. It's out. Saturday. How, it, that's amazing. So uh, on Leap Day, it came out, and uh, we're super excited uh, to put it out into the world. We're incredibly amped to see what God does uh, through this book. But um, we have, how many episodes in are we? Are we close to 40? Uh, this, will, this will be number 40. Yeah. Number 40. So here, episode 40, we thought I actually would love to kind of turn the tables and just grill Michael about this book, this topic, what, what God had done, what God is doing, and just say, let's, let's look uh, at the writer. Let's look at the author, and let's take a, a look behind the pages of this book, um, deep into the heart of man. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Michael, I, I wanted to ask, where did this where did this come from? How long have you been brewing on this idea of a physiology? Oh, man. You know, the, the word, as we've mentioned before, is, a, of course, a neologism that comes from a friend of mine in the Chicago area. And uh, he came up with the word. Well, he doesn't actually know who came up with the word, but they began to use it in a small group that was doing a study on the letter to the, uh, the letter of Ephesians. And uh, I asked him for permission to use it because I thought it was such a catchy thing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. anytime you put ology onto something, it, it means the study of. And so um, that's what this is. It's a study of the church in Ephesus. And, and I have always been fascinated with that church as, as long as I can remember, especially in my uh, career um, as, a, as a missionary. Um, I, I don't think I really realized up until um, uh, the, the past several years the significance of that movement, and um, and so it's been a, a whole lot of fun to to uh, dive very deeply into that church in Ephesus and try to understand the culture and the things that were going on in the city and with the people and the influences that uh, those people were experiencing, not only from, you know, goddess worship, but uh, Paul or Luke tells us about the magicians and the significance of, of uh, their activities in Ephesus, but um, also that of Dionysus and uh, emperor worship that's going on and the philosophy of Heraclitus and all of these things. I mean, it just became an absolutely fascinating study. Um, but again, something that started, you know, way back uh, during my days in Romania, as we were trying to figure out what does a church look like? And um, hmm. I don't know that we solved it then uh, for sure, but just like any missionary, even today, um, as, as we go out into the mission field, we have this sense that, we, you know, we really know what the New Testament church looks like, and that's what we're going to go and start. And uh, I, of course, did that in Romania, was convinced that I knew what the New Testament church looks like. And, and now, 
you know, 30 years this side of those efforts, I, I realized that uh, I, I don't think I really had a clue of what the New Testament church looked like. Um, and uh, yeah, so this, this book is at one level is a story of uh, my journey and trying to figure out what the New Testament church looked like and, and, um, and approaching it um, with open hands. And what I mean by that is that I didn't want to come to this study with my presuppositions um, and uh, because I know that those impact the way in which we look at Scripture. And, and so as much as I could, I mean, there's always a, a cultural bias or a preference that we have when we read Scripture. And so as much as I could, I really tried to set those things aside and say, you know what, Lord, I, I want to read this with first century eyes and really understand what those early believers were understanding when Paul would write, uh, you know, Ephesians and try to understand what Timothy would, would have understood when Paul wrote two letters to him. And, uh, and of course, understand what uh, Jesus would write to uh, the church in Ephesus and, and, uh, and what John would prophesy in the book of Revelation and how they would understand that. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's been a, a lot of fun to wrestle through that. It's been very fun to do that with you guys. Uh, you and Matt have really helped to shape um, what this book looks like, and uh, I've appreciated that. And, and I've appreciated the many voices from around the world as I've had opportunity to talk about uh, the church in Ephesus and how they've helped to contribute uh, that as well. Um, yeah. So Michael, I know that I love disc golf. And so when my love for disc golf is, is so much that I actually just, I go out and play it. That's, that's how I fulfill that passion. I play it. It does not cause me to say, you know what I should do? I should write a book about it. I think I should write a book about disc golf. Actually, it would be one of the worst books ever. But, um, so that's what, my passions lead me to do. Why does your passion and trying to find out about how churches could work, should work, the Ephesian church and, and your love, why did that then result in you saying, I need to write a book about this? Yeah. You know, I think as I began to think about this, I don't know that it, my initial thought was, well, I need to write a book about it. Um, my initial thought was, and often this happens to me, and I'm sure there are others that this is this will sound familiar, that when I'm in the context of ministry and uh, engaging in conversations with leaders, uh, wherever they are, if they're in the United States or somewhere around the world, um, those are some of the most engaging uh, conversations. And they often lead me to think, uh, in ways that I might not have considered. And, um, and, and in this case, um, as we have been a part of uh, the church planting movements um, and in conversations with leaders from uh, many places, I, I just had this sense that, you know, the, the issues that we're wrestling with, the, the criticism that we're hearing um, and that criticism being, you know, in regards to the theological shallowness of church planting movements, the immaturity of leadership, uh, as well as the irresponsible, irresponsible evangelism, that um, I, I just thought, wow, you know, maybe we need to do a deep dive on the church in Ephesus since we know more about that church than any other church and really come to an uh, appreciation at a, what I end up calling at a missiologically theological uh, perspective. Can I stop you there and yeah. just say, for the sake of our listeners who haven't yet purchased the book, it's only been out a few days, let's give them grace. Um, can you break down that phrase, the missiological theological perspective, just kind of unpack that a little bit so yeah. people understand what you're talking about? Yeah, good. And so, um, and I mentioned this in the beginning chapter of the book that I'm not writing what would be referred to as a biblical theology. And um, because often a biblical theology will, it could be many things. I mean, we can have a biblical theology of the church, a biblical theology of God or, or whatever. Um, the same with systematics. 
Um, this isn't a systematic theology either. Um, because what tends to happen in both biblical uh, theology as well as in systematic theology is that missions becomes uh, periphery to everything else. It's, it, it's a subset. It's a subset of biblical theology. It's a subset of systematic theology. And so I wanted to, to think more about missions being the purpose of Scripture and, uh, and that it is speaking to the, our incredible God who is in pursuit of relationship with people, no matter where they are, no matter what background they come from, he wants to have a relationship with them. And, um, and, and he wants that because he knows that that will bring him most glory. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm writing from this missiological theology uh, background. And so what I, what I mean by that term then is that missiological theology is a way in which we look at the story of God and we connect it with the story of a culture. Um, and so we look at this in the, in the book and in particular, of course, with the church in Ephesus. And that's why it was so important to do a study on the culture of Ephesus and really understand, you know, what were the practices surrounding uh, the worship of Artemis? Uh, what were some of the cultural things? And we get into um, the issue of the courtesans, that the women who would go to these consortiums of men and, and uh, they would have intellectual conversations and occasionally would exchange sexual favors. How did that impact um, the culture and even the writing of uh, the New Testament? Um, as well as, you know, of course, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Um, the the philosophy of Heraclitus, and so and so we have to understand culture if we're going to be able to connect God's story to that culture, and that's what missiological theology is. Okay, so I interrupted you while you were talking about kind of again why why you decided to write a book on this exact topic. So continue on with that. Yeah, you know, there have been many books in uh, recent years that have been written about church planting movements and discipleship making movements. And what I began to see as I read uh, those books was that there seemed to be a gap um, because they're mostly books about the practice. You know, how do you do disciple making movements? How do you do church planting movements? Um, and so there's a lot of talk uh, about the practice, the methods uh, of these ideas. And, um, and, and I get that. And they're great books. I mean, I, I um, applaud uh, folks like David Watson and Steve Smith, whom I worked with uh, for a bit. Uh, but many others who are writing about DMM or CPM. And we need those books. But what I noticed was that um, we need also a good, solid, again, what I call a missiological theology um, to help us ground these ideas, these methods and, and, and practices in CPM and DMM so that when, when we're out in the field or, or when we're discipling others, that we can give them that uh, deeper foundation that roots them um, in who God is so that they then have a better understanding of how to apply these principles or, or, or these methods uh, in their particular contexts. And so, and, and so that's, I mean, of course, one of the reasons. And then, uh, too, as I mentioned earlier, um, these issues of theological shallowness, immature leadership, and irresponsible evangelism are are real. I mean, the, these aren't made up. The the folks that are offering these criticism aren't doing it maliciously. I, I think they're trying to be constructive um, as they look at DMM and CPM. Um, and and uh, there's some validity to those criticism. And so I, I wrote this book to not combat the critics, but to offer, again, a, a good missiologically uh, theological foundation to what it is that we want uh, to, to see from CPM and DMM. If I could then piggyback on that, if you were able to 
actually speak out kind of a dream in regards to uh, impact. What would your dream scenario be now that this book of physiology is out in the world? What's what's the dream result of the impact of it? Well, you know, well, ultimately, and this is something that we've been praying uh, consistently is that God would be glorified. You know, our hearts, ours as the, uh, the co-hosts of the podcast and in mine in particular as the author of this book is really um, focused on God's glorification. And, uh, and that's what we want to see. And I know, I mean, inevitably, there, there will be critics of the book. Um, what? Yeah. Well, yeah. But wouldn't it be nice if there aren't? But if there are, I, inv- I'm, I invite that. Again, one of the key principles of um, this study of the church in Ephesus, this whole idea of ephesiology is that we do theology in community. We don't want to do it in isolation. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to sharpening uh, the book and sharpening the ideas in there. Um, but again, you know, our hope is that God will be glorified. And as a result, people will catch a vision for a movement and discover that God really is passionate about movements. And, and the things that we see in the New Testament, the fantastic work of the Holy Spirit, Uh, can occur today, wherever God is working in the world. And we believe, of course, that he's at work everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so this, this, I'm hoping will provide again, that uh, solid foundation upon which to build uh, good methods and practices. And those good methods and good practices that are built upon kind of the, the, the impact of this book, I think it's it's safe to say, as we've said oftentimes, that those methods and those practices might look different context to context, and and we actually don't hope that there is only, you know, a physiology branded uh, T-shirts on yeah. sale uh, <laughs> with one idea and one look, uh, but in fact, it's a spirit led sort of deal for the good of, for the good of His name. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous of what God might do uh, with the book. And um, I, I, I mean, sincerely, my heart is that he would be honored and glorified because that was the, the desire that I had as I was looking into the church in Ephesus and, and uh, beginning to write the book. Um, but yeah, you're right. And, and this was one of the interesting things coming out of the study is I began to see, again, because of the deep dive into the culture, I began to see how Paul and John in particular, and Peter as well, were connecting who God is with the culture in such a way that Christianity became rooted in that culture and uh, that people could then take on that identity uh, genuinely, because it was who they were, and, um, and and so I think that's significant. And you, and to your point, you know, we don't want to see cookie cutter uh, practices around the world. There, there are certainly principles and um, and foundations that we can build upon, but they they uh, it, we we really want to see a unique solutions approach to. Um, these principles being worked out in different places. Well, on that note, um, one of the things that I was wondering for you, it's a twofold question and you can kind of take whatever chunk you want to go with. One, how has God been working in you personally, Michael, how has God been working in you through the study that you have done in ephesiology? How has he changed you? And then um, I, I want you to answer that one first. You know what? I'm just going to ask that first question. I'll ask my second one in a moment. It, has an, it, it will come back to the idea of place. Um, but how has God been working through you, uh, both in the writing and then just kind of where you are now in your walking with Christ? Mm, yeah, thanks for that question. You know, I think through all of this, it's sharpened my understanding of what it means to be an adopted child of God and in his family. And, um, and, and it's sharpened my identity as a, a Christ follower. And, and that's been, I mean, that's still a challenge. Um, I think it will forever be a challenge. 
Um, you know, I can relate to Paul in Romans. Uh, you know, I, I do the things I don't want to do and, and so on. And, but, um, but this understanding of who I am because of what he did and the privilege and the pleasure it is then to join with him on his mission. It, it, I, I mean, that's been uh, life-changing. Um, you know, it's something that I've, I've tried to practice uh, throughout my career. Um, but I think through this study of the church, it just became obvious that unless we have this deep sense of rootedness in who he is and who we are as a result of what he's done, then, um, then, you know, we, we can become distracted in our lives. And, and so identity um, and the early identity of those believers has uh, been a prof- has had a profound impact on who I am. Hmm. How has it had an impact in your, in your role uh, as husband? And how has it had an impact in your role as father? Yeah, that, you know, we, as, um, since some of my research background has been in uh, what is called identity theory, um, I've always been thinking about how do we shape our children to have an identity? Um, and, uh, and, and what would that look like? And, and even in Laurie and Mai's marriage, what does our identity uh, look like in, in our oneness? as husband and wife. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the perfect husband. In fact, if Lori were to be on here, she would affirm that fact. Uh, oh, we should, we should bring her in. <laughs> we should. And not even suggesting that I'm the perfect father uh, either. Um, but the one thing I think that we've done as a family is that we've always stressed our identity and in, in our relationship with Christ, and and uh, a huge part of that is our shared identity that we are on God's mission together. And um, I am so blessed, and Lori too, that we have three incredible kids, all adults now, um, who love the Lord, who are on God's mission, and uh, I mean it's almost literally, I mean, it's almost every day. Uh, our kids are in different places in the country, uh, but it's almost every day that we're having conversations about God's mission and, uh, and what, what's the next thing we're going to do and where is the Lord leading us. And, and so those are, those are incredible conversations. And, and from a parent's perspective, to have those wonderful, really deep and meaningful theological and personal uh, conversations with your adult children is just, I I mean, I don't know of anything other than uh, Christ that can bring more joy to uh, my heart. Sorry, William Carey publishers. uh, This book will not give Michael more joy than his role (laughs) as father in his identity and, and that impact on his kids. Um, yeah, and one of the things, and just to make this comment, one of the things that I, that I like to do when I do write is to kind of weave stories of our family into those stories because, I mean, my family has impacted me. It's changed me. Uh, it's changed how I look at who God is. It's changed some of my theological um, ideas. And uh, and th- so our kids, uh, t- throughout their growing up years and even to this day, in a very significant way, shape who I am. And uh, I love to share stories about uh, how they've done that. And and so there, I, I tell some of those in, in the book. I hope they're not going to be embarrassed by it. But uh, hey, I'm their dad. I, I think that's part of a dad's job is to embarrass their children. If that's the case... I am an excellent, excellent <laughs> dad because the embarrassment factor is high for yeah. my kids. Um, the question that I put off and that I want to bring, you, you talk about the way that this book that we hope, and I should say we hope, that there is, a, is a, an immediate and a global impact that is, is shaping the way people react 
to the goodness of the gospel and then how they take that into their communities, how they take God's story and bring it into the story of their culture. So uh, brass tacks, how is this happening for you in your context? How are you, um, how are you actually putting some of these things, this missiological theology, how are you putting it into practice in your context? Yeah, good. Well, in in our stateside context, of course, we're we're part of a, a community of believers here that uh, Lori and I, as well as they, are building into our lives, and we're building into their lives, and um, we're right now in the process of launching a, a discipleship initiative uh, in our area. Very excited about that, and excited about the enthusiasm of the folks that we're working with. Um, will they've been equipped now with some discipleship skills uh, that are revolving around ideas, of course, that come from the book, and particularly th- this idea um, of identity-based discipleship. Um, and so it's been fun to work with them and and see their their lives grow, and to see them challenged with the idea that out of our identity, we just are compelled to talk with people about Christ and to hear the stories that they share about people that they've engaged uh, with in spiritual conversations has just been a, a real joy, uh, something that we celebrate. And so we're, we're ramping into this and uh, hoping to um, see a number of small groups, uh, what some might refer to as house church, but uh, I mean, we're not using that term because sometimes in the States it's, not very well received, but uh, small groups that function in a community um, where there's prayer, there's care for each other in this in our fellowship. There's the study of God's word, and and there's the reaching out into our community. And so we're excited in the next uh, month to be launching a, a, an outreach initiative in our area, uh, specifically focused on uh, some folks that are in proximity to. Uh, our our church, and uh, and then thinking through, you know, what does it look like to engage them with the gospel, and um, and you know, in the book, I go into how a different uh, how Paul engaged uh, the different people with the gospel in different ways, and so when he communicated to the Jews about who Christ was, he it was distinct from the way in which he communicated uh, with people from different nations. And so we take that to heart and, and we want to be sure that we're understanding uh, the communities that we're engaging where we are and so that we can really connect Jesus's story to their story in a way that it becomes one story. And that's so much fun to be working with uh, a body uh, you know, who is excited about Mm -hmm. engaging in those ways. So we can right size everybody's expectations. Uh, One, you haven't taken over that church, right? You were, you were a, (laughs) you are a faithful part of that church, but you are not the lead pastor. You are not setting all the vision for everybody. And then again, to, to right size this, uh, how many people, are in this initial discipleship initiative that you are launching forth. Yeah. So we have about 15 people that are a part of it. I think okay. it might be a little bit more than that. Um, and then we're inviting right now because th- this group of 15 have been equipped to do discipleship and, and evangelism. It will be opening up uh, that group to a larger group and where, you know, these 15 or so people will be discipling others uh, but again, the, the key to this is because we're thinking in terms of movement, we're thinking in terms of this idea that God is already engaging people in our community. Now we need to figure out how he's doing that and join with him in that engagement. Um, and, and so it's motivated out of this deep desire to seek God glorified by more people worshiping him. And, um, and so, yeah, we're excited uh, about seeing this this develop and then on the other side of course you, you know this is here and overseas um, you know I'm involved in training missionaries in uh, 
that are going to different parts of the world. And we're talking about these things of, um, in regards to missiological theology and how do you really uh, approach a culture and begin to understand it and exegete it, like I talk about in the book, and then reflecting on who we are theologically uh, and biblically and seeing where there are points of intersection in those places. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to, to get people to think at this level. And I think that's so important for us because, you know, the danger that uh, we might experience is getting stuck in a theological rut uh, where we say that, you know, if, if you don't believe like I believe, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. Or that we get into a rut and say, you know, I have to communicate the gospel in this way. Um, and if people reject it, they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting Christ. When the reality is, uh, in some occasions, that oftentimes we become the barrier to a person coming to Christ rather than Jesus himself. And so what we're trying to do is to encourage people to shed those barriers that we might erect uh, that prevents somebody to come to Christ and really get to the, the core of the gospel. You know, how is the good news, good news to this group of people and how can we effectively communicate it? What do you feel? This can be edited out if this is a little too, too much. Uh, what do you feel are some of the immediate barriers in your community where you live? What are some of the immediate barriers to the gospel that you see those who are going through your discipleship initiative are going to have to deal with or engage? Yeah, well, we're being very deliberate in, in uh, the groups of people that we're engaging here. And um, they're primarily from uh, the immigrant populations that have immigrated into our community. And, um, and so the, the barrier that we are facing and that we'll be addressing is, you know, how do you communicate the gospel effectively to somebody who is coming out of a guilt, I'm, I'm sorry, coming out of an honor shame type of culture rather than a guilt innocence? You know, so typically our Western gospel presentations are focusing on a person's guilt, their guilt of sin. And uh, and having to address that sin issue before somebody can come to Christ. But in an honor-shame culture, it's very different uh, how you would approach a presentation of the gospel. And in particular, it, you know, when you're talking with folks that have very different beliefs, um, who um, have different uh, uh, gods or goddesses that they might worship, uh, the call isn't to dispensing with their sin, but it's a, it's a change of allegiance to worship the one true God. And so how do you effectively communicate uh, the gospel in those kinds of contexts? So how, how are you guys then engaging some of the barriers for the people who are not um, of the minority cultures that are coming in? How, how are you all engaging the, uh, everybody else who looks and sounds just like you, but is far from Christ? Yeah, so we're working on a project right now and, and something that we'll continue to develop, but uh, the, particularly looking at what has been referred to as Gen Z. Um, uh, you know, those would be the, the folks that are today in college and um, uh, who are at some level um, uh, not very excited about religion at all and feel like... Uh, that there isn't a relevance to things that are uh, Christian, for example. And so we're thinking through, you know, how can we effectively engage them? So we'll be doing a study um, here before too long at a, on a university campus and trying to understand the worldview of Gen Z. And there, there's been much written about this, but more specifically, we want to get to some of the details of how they understand life and death and how they understand uh, their pursuit of well-being and how, how they explain misfortune and uh, their definitions of right and wrong and, and these kind of ultimate questions that we want to get to and, and really do a, a, a deep dive into their culture so that we can then sit back and reflect about, you know, how can we effectively communicate the gospel to them in a way that 
um, it, Jesus becomes real. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's been a, a fun project to at least initially work on, and, and we'll be ramping this up here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, back to not so much the implications of the book, but the writing process and, and again, the, what God did in your heart and in your mind. What was one of the biggest surprises for you uh, through this process? Yeah, I would, I would think there were two surprises. One is in relationship to the book of Revelation. And the second was in uh, relationship to leadership in the early church. And, and so in relationship to the book of Revelation, I, I had been thinking about this for uh, quite some time. And, uh, and, and a part of it, one of the reasons why I began thinking about this it, it, more deeply was uh, participating in a uh, Bible study a, a couple times uh, on uh, the book of Revelation. And of course, it was taught uh, from a very eschatological perspective that, you know, there are these periods of times and we need to understand the different symbols and, and so on. And I, I began to, to uh, wrestle with, um, you know, Jesus's instructions to his disciples. And we talk about this in uh, the podcast on sustaining a movement. Um, but but uh, I, I, I asked the question, you know, has something changed since Jesus said to his disciples, you know, don't think about these things, focus on the mission. Um, and so did something change by the time we get to uh, John's writing of the book of Revelation? And, and I, I answer the question, no, nothing's changed. Um, our mission hasn't changed. Our focus should not have changed. And yet what's happened in our study of the book of Revelation is that it becomes um, a study of the, the end times, the eschatology. Um, but that's not the focus of it. The focus of it is for us to maintain the vision of the completion of God's work. Uh, and the result being that uh, people from every nation, tribe, language uh, will be before the throne of the Lord. And so that, that was uh, to, um, a great study to do. And uh, again, I think from that study, it creates this vision that God is at work and we have a choice. Do we join him in that work or do we sit on the sidelines? And I think the book of Revelation, in particular, Jesus's letters to the churches, is calling us to get in the game and get off the sideline, uh, that join with God in what he's doing and, uh, and start being on his mission. The, the, the second one, the second surprise was uh, leadership in the New Testament church. And this was a challenging one. And, and it genuinely was a surprise because I didn't expect to, uh, well, I had no way to anticipate where I would land on this. Um, I thought, you know, leadership was leadership. You have elders in the church, you have deacons in the church, you have a pastor and so on. But as I began to look at, uh, for example, Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and shepherds uh, who are teachers is the way that uh, I end up uh, talking about it in the book. Um, and then looking at 1 Timothy 3 um, and the instruction to uh, the overseer and the deacons, um, and then his continued instruction to the count, uh, about the council of elders and, and uh, in particular elders who would teach. I began to see that uh, that that style of leadership wasn't lining up with what we see in the church today. And so I wrestled with that uh, in the text of Scripture and then uh, began to look historically at the development of leadership. And, of course, through the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, we see a very clear uh, threefold leadership of a overseer. Uh, a council of elders and deacons. And that evolves. And of course, uh, through church history, it evolves into uh, something that became very foreign to the New Testament. And that was the monarchical episcopate, where there was one uh, bishop who was supreme, supreme, or who was, you know, hierarchically uh, above uh, everyone else. And, uh, but that, that wasn't what I was seeing 
in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, coming to, a, I, I think, a, a richer understanding of the Apostle Paul himself and his passion to involve others in the ministry and his expectation of their involvement and in, uh, in joining with him in suffering, I began to see that he was, he had a style of leadership that was very flat and very inclusive. And he was always putting people forward. And uh, that became evident in looking at, you know, the seven epistles that he co-authors. And, and we typically don't give any regard to, to the people that he co-authors those epistles with. Um, and yet, if we look at who Paul was, we see his passion for people. And, um, and that, that becomes uh, a place out of which he then leads. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, I, I come to the point and say that in the New Testament church, the, there was not a hierarchy. Uh, there wasn't a bishop who, were, who was over uh, a group of elders and who were over deacons. And these deacons didn't do menial tasks like they do today in, in the uh, church, typically. Uh, they had a significant role, in fact, in the church. And in the book, I talk about how uh, their roles, as we see evidenced in the people who were described as deacons, um, uh, their roles were being apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. It's a, it's a heck of a conversation to get into with people um, who have not yet read the book and trying to get into scripture and say, okay, so what does it say here? And uh, to go into that little bit of a deep dive and see the shock on people's faces when you're saying, so so this person was defined as a deacon. And then verses later, it says that they are doing signs and wonders and they're preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. So how does that fit with your previous understanding? Um, right. It's a joyous one, frankly. Um, it's been It's been fun doing that with folks in my church. And uh, I know that others are going to tear into your book um, and continue to, to really dig into some of these deeper things. And then God willing, take it forward and say, okay, so how do we do this then in actuality? How do we not just study movements? Thus, it's a, it's a mental exercise or it is a, an intellectual sort of deal. Um, but, the book we hope actually changes, well, God uses it to change hearts. And then that leads to change in the world. Um, what do you, if people read the book and they listen to our podcast, is there anything else that they can utilize a physiology for? Is the book and the podcast, is that all we've got? Is that all that we hope for in the future with Ephesiology? Yeah, you know, th- uh, yeah, thanks for that question because we've, we've given a lot of attention in building a platform uh, that's accessible anywhere in the world. And one of the th- cool things, I think, about the book is um, at the end of every chapter, we have what are called QR codes that you can scan with your phone and it'll take you to uh, our website where there... I think we just have a ton of extra resources on there. Um, it'll it'll connect you with the relevant podcast on the topic, as well as uh, many other resources uh, concerning that topic. And so I'm I'm, I'm actually kind of thrilled about that um, uh, as a resource for folks um, who who pick up the book. You know, we we also um, have opportunities for people who want to go deeper into this. Uh, We do seminars and workshops and uh, I mean, we're happy to come to a church to to work with leadership uh, in thinking through how how do you become a movement. And so I'm excited about those uh, future opportunities that we'll have to engage and sharpen uh, what we're trying to do. Is this all, if, if anybody's listened to this podcast before, you know this is tongue-in-cheek. Um, Michael, is this our latest attempt to build our own brand? Is that the reason why we have so much material online and we're encouraging folks if they wanted to bring us out to talk with us? Is this a brand-building effort? 
No, not not at all. I mean, we're not interested in that. But what we're interested in, ultimately, and we've said this repeatedly, is for God to be glorified. I mean, really, and we say that with the most genuine hearts. Um, we're going to fail at it, I'm sure, uh, but but uh, th- that's where we are. That that's our hope, our desire is that God will be most glorified, and that more and more people will join Him on His mission. And we'll see more and more people come to him. And uh, if we can be a part of helping others uh, do that, then we want to do that. And, and we want to make every effort that we can to, to make that possible. Uh, the, the book is a resource for that. The website, the podcasts um, are coming and engaging with you are all uh, our, our uh, feeble attempts to um, see God glorified and to see others on his mission and to see more people come to Christ. Yep. Um, well, are you think there is anything else that our, our listeners need to know about you, the book, the process, or, you know, what actions to take now that you want to share with everybody? Yeah. You know, the only thing that comes to my mind is that it, uh, the, this is my heart. I know it's your heart, Andrew, and I know it's Matt's as well, is that we really want to do this in community with others. We don't want this to be something that we're doing in isolation. Um, there is a, a, just a wealth of resources in our brothers and sisters here in the United States and around the world that uh, we want to tap into. And uh, if you can sharpen us, we really want you to do that. If we can sharpen you, we want to do that as well. And so this is a community um, effort, uh, uh, doing theology collaboratively. And uh, we mean that very sincerely. So uh, please speak into our lives. Uh, help us shape what it is that we're doing. And, uh, and I mean, we can all be the better for it. Where are they going to do that? Yeah, well, the natural place, of course, is on our website. Um, There are places to comment on uh, the book and different topics. So we're inviting people to do that. Engage with us. We we engage back with you. Um, That's ephesiology.com. Yep, yep, ephesiology.com. On our Facebook page as well. Uh, We're trying to be very active on that page and and provide information that we think is pertinent to uh, what God is doing around the world. So please engage with us there. Um, If you're a blog writer, I mean, if you have something that you want to share that you think is relevant to uh, those who are listening to the podcast or visiting the website, you know, please contact us. We, we uh, want to see our, our blog uh, posts increase. And uh, and so we're, we're inviting you to, join us. Uh, Another thing that Michael has available on the ephesiology.com website, when we talk about the desire for people to continue to engage, the desire for people to go deeper, to be changed again, to take this beyond the intellectual, but into the heart and out into the world for God's glory, for more to be united in him to engage in God's mission. There are study questions at the end of every chapter and we have put those there because the intent is not again it's not just we want to fill your heads with awesome information it's that there there are things within each chapter if you are anything like myself as i read through the book i was stirred i was annoyed i was angered i was encouraged i needed more time to process And so we've placed these questions there uh, to help you engage and to process. And so as much as Michael has invited you to do theology and community with us, to go online, to leave comments, to to go on to Facebook, to interact with us there, um, we are also encouraging you to do theology and community where God has placed you Mm -hmm. and maybe utilize these questions to do this with others, go through the book as a group, uh, as a small group, as a house church, as a leadership team, but build in time to ask these questions of one another, build in space so that you can reflect and process. Because if you're anything like Michael, Matt, and I, 
just having the, the reading once was nothing. We decided to make a whole podcast out of this because we wanted to keep talking about these things and digging deeper. And so we want to encourage you utilize these resources that are available on ephesiology.com. Get all that you can out of this effort to God's glory. Amen. Amen. And we have you to thank for those questions. And I, I, I'm very appreciative for you giving some thought to uh, what would be the relevant things that we need to think about more deeply in the book. And, and so I'm looking forward to having people interact. Again, even on those question pages, there are places where you can make comments and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, again, you know, this is not uh, one person's effort. We're not doing this in isolation. Uh, we want to do it collaboratively uh, because we're all after the same thing. It, we all, I believe this with all my heart, it, our desire is to see God glorified. And uh, it, we can best do that in community. And, and what a joy it would be to, uh, uh, to be a part of that with, with you. Well, I think that kind of wraps up Michael's heart and his desire. And I think that wraps up our time for today. Uh, we just want to thank you so much for joining us on the Ephesiology podcast. Um, this has been an effort that Matt, Michael, and I have put forth uh, in love and excitement for what God is going to do. And so we pray that God continues to work in you and through you, bringing himself glory and uh, allowing you to participate his mission in this world. Um, thank you for your time. As we have already said, uh, give us uh, a rating on iTunes or Overcast or Spotify or wherever you are engaging with us as your podcatcher. Um, rate us five stars. Leave some comments there. Let other people know about what you are enjoying about this podcast and why. Interact with us on Facebook. Uh, we love the three people who are consistent in that, and we would love for it to grow uh, to at least five, uh, six on a healthy day. Um, but no, truthfully, we would love to interact with you on Facebook and take these conversations beyond the superficial, beyond the surface, and uh, dig deep together. Uh, thank you for going on ephesiology.com and checking out all of these resources. And uh, well, for today, from myself, from Michael, and the uh, sickish Matt, we thank you. Have a great week. Amen. Hey, good job. You do that intro and outro great. That intro sucked. There is no <laughs> other way to put that.